Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Monday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in just a moment, we're taking this week to reflect on 2020. Today, I'll speak with author and professor Michael Eric Dyson. People having to say goodbye to their loved ones on screens, people getting therapy on screens, people going to church on screens. So we have to really shift the metaphor. That's coming up in just a moment. But first this, inoculations are underway at a senior living facility in Gainesville. Staff at the Oaks Limestone in Gainesville, Georgia, were the first employees of a senior living facility to receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Long-term care facilities, staff and residents represent about 5% of our cases uh, in the state of Georgia and yet represent over 37% of the deaths in the state that we have reported since this, this pandemic began. We hope with these vaccines we will begin to st- change those statistics and save lives here in not just in this long-term care facility, but in all of those that are participating with us in this vaccine program. Also, Georgia Department of Public Health Commissioner Dr. Kathleen Toomey said the staff will be inoculated first, then the patients. If you think about it, the the providers here at the long-term care facility are the firewall protecting the the residents, and so they will be vaccinated first, and, and after the the after the. Uh, the staff are vaccinated, then the the workers or the uh, residents will be vaccinated. So that's a, you know, it's a very strategic way to work. If you you're actually protecting the residents by by vaccinating the staff and, and doing that very very quickly. Still, this announcement comes after the Georgia Department of Public Health reported a record-breaking number of newly confirmed cases on Christmas Eve. Seven thousand eight hundred and ninety-nine cases were reported on that day. Concerns about an increase from new cases to hospitalizations is now prompting Governor Brian Kemp to issue a cautionary message to Georgians. Over the last 30 days, the highest percentage of new cases has come from individuals that are between 18 and 29 years of age. And while death in this category are thankfully very low, these individuals can bring the virus home with them during the holidays to their parents, grandparents, and others who are more vulnerable. That is why with New Year's Eve this Thursday, limit your gatherings to small groups of people within the same household. Consider uh, gathering virtually to watch the ball drop. Consider the risk of including elderly loved ones or those more susceptible to the virus and implement the best practice and public health guidance outlined in our orders into your plans. And at the time of this broadcast, 543,707 COVID-19 cases in total have been confirmed here in Georgia. 
40,787 have been hospitalized, and of those, 7,236 considered ICU admissions. And since the state began recording these numbers back in March, 9,714 deaths have been confirmed. And this is always according to the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now, in other news, as of Sunday, about 2.1 million Georgians have cast their ballots, and nearly 67,000 votes have been cast by people who did not vote in November. And these numbers are only expected to increase. As for those folks, now according to the online database and nonpartisan group Georgia Votes, this increase is among voters 18 to 29, just over 10 percent. Now, this is the final week for early in-person voting for the January 5th runoff elections. So you need to check your county's Board of Elections website or the Secretary of State's website to see when your polling location will close. And finally, get ready to pitch this one. Well, I got a Glenn Hubbard bat here and a Craig Nettles glove in my hand. So if I don't pitch well, maybe I could do something with the bat. It's got to be a great thrill for you. I know this. Uh, it's going to be fun, but it's also a bittersweet sort of thing, I suppose. Well, I hope it's fun. Um, I'm going to go tr- try and win like I always have. Uh, I think probably the nice thing about this particular ball game, Skip, is, is, is winning and losing is important. It always has been. But knowing that my last pitch in the big leagues, the last pitch I'm going to throw in my career, is going to be with Atlanta Brave Head on. And that's, that's, I can't think of a better, no kind of a better way than in my career with Atlanta Brave Head on. Don't know how to tell the people this, but even when you were in New York and Cleveland and Toronto, you were an Atlanta Brave and you always will be. Good luck. Thank you, Skip. They're on their feet again here in Atlanta. And if you've been around this place and you don't get goosebumps today, you better get well. There's Nancy, Phil's lovely wife. Everybody standing in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Boy, this is really something. The crowd is at least 30, I would guess. That's two legends. Skip Carey speaking with Atlanta Braves pitcher Phil Necro on his last game in 1987. A Hall of Fame pitcher, Phil Necro died over the weekend. He was 81. It was with the Braves where he notched the majority of his 318 career victories, including a National League leading 20 wins in 1974 and 21 wins in 1979. Now you sports fans will know that Necro was the master of the knuckleball. He pitched until he was 48 years old when he retired in 1987. Ten years later, he was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown. In a statement announcing his death, the Braves said they were heartbroken on the passing of a treasured friend. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up on tomorrow's program, we'll discuss the vaccine here in Georgia. We'll hear how a rural health care system is planning to vaccinate its employees and also the patients it serves, who are mostly uninsured. The director of the Partnership Health Center in Valdosta, John Sparks, joins me. As we worked with public health to become a dispenser of the vaccine within our community. There were all sorts of forms and training that we had to go through. And we, uh, our operations director and our chief clinical officer went through all those different trainings 
and of course we filled out our forms to get the Moderna vaccine because it was a lot easier for us to store it. Mm -hmm. And um, and so we were just uh, waiting and biding our time, wondering when it was going to show up. And lo and behold, last week, Moderna showed up at our door uh, with 100 um, doses of the vaccine. And uh, right before Christmas, <laughs> what a Christmas present. Absolutely. How were you all able to store it then? Right now, of course, the, the initial doses of vaccine are for our employees and mm -hmm. volunteers. And, of course, that vaccine will be used within the first 30 days. And so we were able to store that in our own refrigeration units that we already have, that we keep sample medication and diabetic medication, that type of thing. We have data loggers attached to those uh, devices, so we know what temperature it stays at all day long, all night long, that type of thing. And, uh, and so we have ordered the certified refrigeration freezing units that mm -hmm. Moderna requires that we should receive in a couple of weeks. And that way we'll be able to keep long-term doses of Moderna as we begin to vaccinate our patient population next. And the refrigeration unit, the vaccine refrigeration unit will be in our clinic. It's, it's not a large unit because those vials are not very big, so it doesn't take up a, a, a tremendous amount of space. But we'll be able to keep it frozen um, while we are working through our patient population. And so right now, uh, of course, we're doing our employees first and volunteers. The next phase will be begin with our patients. And then beyond that, it, uh, we should be in, you know, in partnership with the hospital to do more community-type vaccinating. How much do you anticipate you'll need when you talk about your patient population because that's right and initially to get them all vaccinated we we would need probably around six thousand doses of the vaccine because it's you it's two two doses for full vaccination mm -hmm. we serve about three thousand uninsured patients right now and so we have to vaccinate them twice so that's six thousand doses have you been assured that you all will receive these vaccines in a time. As much as anybody has been assured. I mean, we leave, we've got the first hundred doses for um, our staff and volunteers. Mm -hmm. So that's encouraging that we're going to receive the, the doses as it comes along, especially uh, what was encouraging to me is, you know, you know, when you think about it, we're a small nonprofit medical clinic that serves the uninsured. Mm -hmm. Who are we? in the state of Georgia in the big scheme. We're nothing but a tiny little tadpole, but yet we have received the vaccine. So that tells me that things are moving faster and better than maybe most of us thought they would, mm -hmm. which is encouraging. Also, Dr. Kimberly Manning, a Grady doctor, talks about her decision to participate in COVID-19 clinical trials. I think for years, um, when you read academic papers and studies, one of the things that we often see is that uh, very few of the enrollees are black and or, or reflect my patient population. And so there's often like this study, you say, oh, this is what the result was, but there were no black Americans in the, in the study. So how do we know? Um, <clears throat> and so I knew that COVID-19 was disproportionately impacting um, black and brown people. And I knew that um, whatever data that we got from a vaccine, it would really help if we had, you know, people who were most impacted enrolled in the study so we could be a part of the data. 
Um, and, uh, and, I, and I'm in a unique position in that I work at Grady Hospital and I'm on the faculty at Emory. So some of the investigators are people that I know personally. And I had a lot of places where I could ask questions and do my homework first. Um, and it was convenient because my rolling site was at Grady. Uh, so, so I never even, I, I saw it as an honor and I saw it as a privilege um, because I knew that I would try my best to use my voice to help my, um, my community feel more comfortable. And I thought, wow, how dope would it be if I was actually in the study and I could talk to my folk, you know, about, hey, look, this is what it was like for me, but also still acknowledge, you know, how people feel, their fears, their valid concerns and, um, and trepidation and, and, and talk that thing out as somebody who had experienced it. For The Lancet, Dr. Manning, you wrote, this was an emotional decision. I'm going to quote you here. Quote, I stepped out of the parking garage and made my way towards the building. Once I reached the ramp leading to the entrance, I froze. My feet felt glued to the asphalt and a few tears slid down my cheeks. Yeah, um, you know, you know, as we know, there there, there were people who looked like us who were um, had a lot to do with the medical investigation and the information that we have now who never had a choice. They just never had a choice. They never got consented. They were never asked. They were subjected to some really painful things. Um, and I just felt this sort of, um, I felt the weight of all of those people. A lot of them women, you know, um, especially as you think about, you know, obstetric and gynecologic um, mm -hmm. procedures and how we learned about those. Mm -hmm. And those women like me, if I was born in a different time, um, that that could have been me, that would have been me. You know, as I look at my face in the mirror and I see freckles and things that, you know, that they tell a story of, of, of ways that people like us were violated. You know, mm -hmm. I would not have a freckle on my face where, where someone down the line not violated, right? And mm -hmm. so I felt all of that. And um, as I got there, I thought to myself, I'm carrying you in here with me and I'm going to ask these questions and I am going to get informed and then I will decide if I consent or if I refuse. That's on tomorrow's Closer Look. Coming up next, a conversation with author, scholar, Michael Eric Dyson. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. It is considered one of the most powerful and haunting songs. Blood on the leaves 
That is a remarkable Billie Holiday with arguably her signature song, Strange Fruit. Now, the lyrics birth from a poem written by Abel Mirapol, authored under the name Lewis Allen. And Mirapol's poem was inspired by a photograph of a horrific act that occurred in Marion, Indiana, on the night of August 7, 1930. Young black men, Thomas Shipp and Abram Smith, were accused of murdering a white man and raping his female companion. They will be lynched by a town mob. Shipp and Smith's beaten bodies hanged from a tree as white men, women, and children gathered, some pointing and smiling. There are far too many photographs that capture the evil of lynching and racism in America. And while technology has enhanced our lives, it's also provided an instant window to some modern-day similar events. This year, the cell phone video of George Floyd taking his last breath under the knee of a Minnesota police officer. The February shooting death of Ahmaud Arbery here in Georgia. Well, this is not the first time video has captured such events. And while a pandemic raged on this summer, protests calling and demanding for racial justice took place nationwide. And some of these events are included in a new book titled Long Time Coming. My next guest authors the chapters to those whose deaths are cemented in what can be defined as unjust. Returning to the program, best-selling author, scholar, professor, minister, and orator of conscious hip-hop, Dr. Michael Eric Dyson, I think this is our fourth conversation in three years. Great to have you back. Always great to be with you with your singular voice and uh, strong and powerful insight. Thank you for having me. You know, before we dissect long time coming in the calls for racial justice here in 2020 related to the killing of black Americans, of course, the Mm -hmm. pandemic and the presidential election, I'm going to ask you this, Michael Eric Dyson, how do you sum up all that's taken place this year? Well, it certainly has been a year for the books. Um, a year that has reminded us of our fragility as human beings on this planet. That whether we are the victims of a global virus that has besieged the lives of millions across this globe, killing more than a million by far, or whether you are the victims of a racial pandemic that has been deeply integrated, tolerated, and perpetuated in a culture that is ostensibly committed to democracy, freedom, justice, and equality. Either one of those pandemics, what they in the 90s called syndemics, the convergence of two pandemics. And so we're living through a syndemic. And the converged pandemic of race and the converged pandemic of virus often have the same cry after the viral pandemic leaves the lungs spongy with people proclaiming i can't breathe Hmm. and police batons knees or guns 
beating, shooting, and rendering black fresh flesh mute with them claiming I can't breathe. Both claiming I can't breathe, both because of a pandemic of race and a pandemic of the virus come to the same conclusion. And so we are here uh, in a year at the end of it that has been marked and marred by such trauma and yet the human spirit rises the determination to keep going is reasserted and hopefully with a sea change politically we at least have a restoration of science and of fact hmm. not that we should worship at the altar of either the you know the misuse of science we're looking at the vaccine now uh, in its reg in regard to black people, yes, we want to take it. Yes, I think, you know, I'd rather have black people taking the vaccine than dying in disproportionate numbers. But we can't pretend that we don't know about Tuskegee experiment. We can't pretend we don't know about Henrietta Lacks. We can't pretend that science hasn't been used against us. So black people are not afraid of science. They're afraid of scientists. They ain't afraid of medicine. They're afraid of doctors who misapply that medicine. So um, as we stand on the precipice of a new era, a new year, hopefully washing away the neo-fascism of a third political pandemic, call it COVID 2016, <laughs> that came to fore and to bear in this country in the form of Trumpism, uh, we have uh, lived through this uh, powerful trilogy of traumas that we're trying to negotiate. Let me ask you this, Professor. I was going to save this question toward the end, but I think based on what you just told me, I want to know how you've been coping this year through all of this. Mm. You know, um, by God's grace and the love of my family, both immediate, intimate, and extended, uh, we are dependent upon each other. You got to fall back on your music, your culture, your arts, your religion, your faith, your expressions of creativity to sustain you in the midst with masks and social distancing. You know, thinking about how some people are already socially distanced in our economy. And we wear the masks, as Paul Lawrence Dunbar said, having to adopt certain guises to thwart the virulent persistence of white supremacy. So, you know, with a little help from my friends, as the Beatles might say, mm -hmm. and, um, you know, from God above and calling upon every resource we can on this earth, to summon the will, the power, and the imagination to sustain, and uh, I'm no different in that regard. So let's talk about long time coming. When did it hit you to start writing this? You know, um, as you pointed out, the horrors of George Floyd, his death, the way in which he so publicly gave up the ghost, was forced into martyrdom, um, hammered 
by the brutal buffeting of a police indifference to black life again. And yet this time something different. Maybe we were all at home because of the pandemic watching our screens and screens that we now conceded could communicate intimacy in a way we wouldn't have imagined before. Before the pandemic, we were blasting people. Why y'all stuck on them darn screens? Get real, get with human interaction. Mm -hmm. And now this is what human interaction is reduced to, screens. Mm -hmm. And people having to say goodbye to their loved ones on screens, people getting therapy on screens, people going to church on screens. So we had to really shift the metaphor and derive a necessary intimacy, a remote distance communicating intimacy, a remote intimacy, ironically, perhaps even paradoxically enough. And so we were there, we saw it, it was horrible. No excuses, it removed the asterisks from white people too. He wasn't running, he wasn't jumping, he wasn't hiding, he wasn't beating, he wasn't threatening, he wasn't dangerous, all the usual stuff. White people were like, now there he is on the ground with the callous, cold, calculated indifference to black life with a man's knee. How brutal, how primal can you get? And his knee on his neck asphyxiating him as he claimed he couldn't breathe and obviously because he can't be trusted to tell the truth about race or about anything, we can't take his word seriously. Ah, you can breathe, you're talking. And so I think white Americans, among others, saw that. It motivated them in a way like never before. And look, I'm not here to judge white folk about what it took to get them moving. Like, bro, you didn't see this in slavery? Oh, okay, you missed it during Jim Crow? Cool. You missed it during apartheid? Oh, all right. You missed it with bodies swinging? that strange fruit, fruit that you began with that Billie Holiday sang about, that uh, a poet wrote about, that you missed, that you didn't see. Well, we've had reckonings before, that's the point. We have had people before say never again, and yet here it is again. But this time perhaps uh, something is different because of the pandemic, something's different because of the excuses removed. And now um, white brothers and sisters got out there, swole the numbers and their bodies were vulnerable too. I mean, white people jumping out there along with black and Latin, Latinx people and others, exposing their bodies to potential harm in the pandemic and further harm from the cops. And white folk dying in Kenosha after Jacob Blake was shot. The two men who were killed by a white bigot, a young vigilante, allegedly 17 years old, were two white men. Mm -hmm. So things then changed to a degree and at least the possibility of opening up. Now, you know, that's when white folk fell in love with black people for the first time, some of them. And like any relationship, you get the romance first and then comes the everyday unsexy part. So when people go, well, six months ago, white people were posting and they were saying, I love you. And they were sending us flowers. <laughs> you know, now, now here we are, we're married. The honeymoon's over. 
well, this is the unsexy part where the toilet seat is up, the toothpaste is not done right, the toilet paper is jacked up, but this is where real love manifests. Mm. What do we do every day to translate a desire to see racial reckoning, to see systemic racism addressed? This is where we are. So I think that that all motivated me to write, to think, to reflect, to write letters. I didn't want to write about these people. I wanted to write to them. Mm -hmm. Tired of objectifying them even more, distancing them from the events that took their lives. Let me sit and write to them, speak out loud with them and see what was going on. Yeah. In the book, because the reader may know their names and you address those individuals it's their deaths, it's the circumstances of their killings, it's the history of systemic racism that you will weave into their stories, the violence and all the historical intersectional inequities. And so with the chapters begin with you addressing the fallen and you start with Elijah McClain. Mm-hmm. Why Elijah McClain? Well, um, Elijah McClain, to me, was so representative of so much of the hurt and pain we endure and the ways in which we are forced ourselves, seduced ourselves into giving, you know, account for our bodies as if we did something wrong to deserve what people did to us. Mm -hmm. And whether black people admit it or not, you know, all of us are caught up to a certain degree, even when we say we resist in the politics of respectability. You know, and well, why should we say a certain person had, it didn't make a difference whether they had a criminal record or not? When we know white folk be judged, well, you know, dude, you know, stole stuff, shot people, uh, was accused of hurting women, you know, so. We ain't trying to pretend that that stuff doesn't make a difference as if we are somehow morally exempt from concern. But you didn't care about this person hurting and harming us among ourselves before they were killed by the police. Ironically enough, you weren't concerned about rape of black women. You use it as a kind of bargaining chip to mitigate the disaster of your own policing. You ain't concerned about them black women or vulnerable poor women. Uh, You ain't concerned about what you claim to be black on black crime, which is really neighbor to neighbor carnage. That ain't your real shtick, you don't care. You just wanna use that to justify why cops could kill black people because hey, y'all are killing each other. So we're forced into these positions of saying, well, look, And Elijah McClain was doing respectability politics and he was a guy who was totally unnecessary. It was unnecessary for him to have done it because he was as pure as they come. We can fight against that. We can, yes, don't become complicit in the very narrative that would justify our deaths. I'm with all that. But having said that, here's a guy who may have been, quote, on the spectrum, sweet 23-year-old black man. Wouldn't hurt a fly, as he said, to the cops as they brutally commenced to murder him. Uh, His co-worker said he walked as if he had a gold orb around him. He played violin to soothe pigeons and birds. 
He was a sweet young man. Mm -hmm. And yet none of his sweetness, this is a lesson to all of us, none of the niceness, none of the intelligence, none of the openness um, could prevent him from dying. So it ain't what we do is who we are. You know, you want to justify Mike Brown's death later on. Well, he stole some cigarillos. Then a new documentary came out afterwards saying, you know, basically that place was a spot where you could turn in and get some weed and put your blunts up there. So it wasn't as innocent of the people who were working there as it initially appeared. So you're trying to posthumously assassinate my man's character that did it with Breonna Taylor. Hey, I think her boyfriend was selling drugs and she knew it. That was the other one, homie, if that was the case. And who said she was involved? And do you kill people for knowing people who do stuff? If that's the case, most white people would be dead, according to those rules. Mm -hmm. So here it is, though, Elijah McClain. Here's the one that you claim this is the kind of people you like. This is the kind of black man you claim. Hey, if he had been just cooperating with the police. Hey, if he had not had a criminal record. Hey, if, if, if he fits at all. Nice, sweet, gentle, artistic, wonderful. Who was walking home. Hmm. Walking, walking home from a convenience store with a, with a ski mask on because he was anemic. This is before the COVID-19 pandemic. And somebody called the police. I don't think he's a problem, but go check. This is why I want to say to white people, when you do that, just think about the fact that you could be calling somebody's death in. Mm -hmm. You could be calling somebody's murderer, killer in. And these cops show up and they render him unconscious twice. For what? And all five, six, 140 some pounds. Why? And then rendered unconscious twice in these chokeholds. The EMT arrives, administers ketamine, and he goes into shock. A week later, he's dead. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's a trauma to the black body, tragedy to the black community, communities. But it is uh, an instance, again, of how vulnerable we are in the face of such hideous and noxious white supremacy. The voice you hear is Dr. Michael Eric Dyson. He's my guest as we begin a week of conversations, a short week of conversations reflecting on 2020. And, and Professor Dyson has a new book called Long Time Coming, where he authors chapters to those whose deaths are cemented in what can be defined as unjust. In the chapter, White Theft, as you speak to and about Breonna Taylor and EMT, Working in this pandemic, you write, I'm going to quote you here. My dear sister Brianna, how many lives did you touch, even save as you quietly went about your work and your commitment to service? You embody what we have taught our children from the start of our pilgrimage in this country. No matter how bleak our days are haunted, our nights to never give up. Close quote. Yeah, yeah I mean, Brianna Taylor. Again. 26 years old, EMT, public servant, in her bed, harming not a soul with her boyfriend next to her. A no-knock warrant is issued. The cops bang at the door, barge it down. The boyfriend shoots. When white folk defend themselves, castle doctrine, they have a right. He is initially arrested on attempted murder. 
Where's the castle doctrine? Where's stand your ground? For us, never. And so she is shot several times and killed, and the black attorney general sees fit only to lodge a charge against a cop involved, but not for shooting at Breonna Taylor or her apartment, but at an adjacent apartment of a white person. Not the black person whose apartment was shot up. Only the white person's apartment, right? So segregation, discrimination, racism, white supremacy happen even when the mouth moving is black. The ventriloquist effect of white supremacy, the, hege the hegemonic, imperial sphere of white supremacy can occupy even a black mind and mouth. And so her death continues to resonate and echo because of its patent injustice, the attempt to smear her posthumously. And yet the undeniable fact that she is dead. And I figured when the city of Louisville decided to give $12 million to the family and try to say they're going to do no-knock warrant. You knew then it wasn't going to turn out that these cops would be held accountable, as if $12 million is worth this precious woman's life. And so she represents our agony still of not being able to, even when we are alone at, or, or with our loved one at home, not hurting anyone, serving the community and contributing to the culture that we are still vulnerable. So it's a fact we can't get over, over or around. I know on this program this year long, all the conversations on race relations, racial reconciliation or mm -hmm. racial awakening. I know you've probably had a lot of these conversations too. Um, but there has been one view that's been universal, one being that this time seems different from the other uh, social justice movements, which you, which you talked about just a while ago. But in mm -hmm. terms of actionable outcomes, that many feel that perhaps there will be some actionable outcomes as it relates to maybe police reform or any other area that needs reforming. Do you agree that we're in a moment where there might be some other actionable outcomes, maybe through legislation. I don't know. You yeah, I wouldn't hope so. You know, but that's up for debate, literally. You got ex-presidents making comments about defund the police, that when you got white folk at least open to it, then the black voice casts doubt and uh, uses the blackness to legitimate the doubt and yet doesn't use the blackness to identify with the victims mostly of this because you can be an ex-president and say look because you're pharaoh you're not the children of israel i mean don't get it twisted when you're speaking as an ex-president even though if you were a member of the same group for the first time pharaoh let my people go pharaoh is one of us right that's not a judgment that's an acknowledgement of job description not, you know, I voted for Pharaoh twice. <laughs> so I'm down with that. 
But let's not be surprised at a perspective, even though he's backtracked and said, no, that's not what I meant. I was already down with them. But then you know how to communicate. You know what's going to be taken up. You know what's going to be the headline. And why be more mad at the people who want to reform police, defund the police? Hell, if they want to get rid of the police, you could, you could at least say, you know what? I get it. Because no reform has really worked. We've, everything I'm saying, we've tried. You know, uh, community policing, community oversight, mm-hmm. hold these cops accountable. Police unions are out of whack. They got money disproportionate to their numbers. They keep reform from occurring. So why not say maybe we have to darn do it in a rejiggered way, in a radically reimagined way. Now, the left has to stop being so hypersensitive too. Oh, you left? That means you ain't got you ain't got to handle skills? You, you, you don't have to have marketing? That's why you ain't winning the game anyway. This is why the white folk and the right folk, right-wing folk, at least understand, dude, the, 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 ask, ask the South. They lost a war, but they won the battle of interpretation. Ask them what it is to be a minority and <clears throat> to have lost something, but to have won. So we can't pretend like, you know, we can't take no advice about, hey, call it something else. I mean, call it Buddha Babuda. <laughs> hey, we want to Buddha Babuda the police. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I, I just think that there is a potential for us to change, to get things different, uh, if we are determined to do so. And we can't demand the same kind of explosive energy uh, that we saw in the immediate aftermath. This is the, this is the toilet paper. This is the toothpaste. This is the everyday stuff. But this is where the real change can happen. What do you do in corporate America? What do you do when you go home? What do you do when you go to school? What do you do when you have relationships now? How do you, how do you distribute your money? Right. What do governments do? Yeah, this is where the unsexy part has to take place. If actionable items and legislation are passed to make real the promises of that day six months ago when people were outraged and fled, fueled uh, social outrage and fled into the streets. For our listeners who may not be aware of what you're referring to when you say an ex-president that you voted for twice, who are you talking about? George Bush, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Barack Obama. Look at you acting up. <laughs> what I do. Let me. What add. I do. What I do. <laughs> Stop hitting the three pointer from the corner. Let me ask yeah. you this: Do you tie the election of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as a direct action part of to this year's calls for racial justice? As these are yes. the people, okay? And it took a lot. And 74 million said, nah, we're gonna stick with the program. But my daddy said, if you if you if you lose by a dollar, might as well be a dime. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Uh-huh. You know, look, one vote more. Whatever it took, it can change. Shoot, the outcome of us, you can be in game seven, hitting a game-winning shot. All of them get five games or six, seven games played. Four, one by you, three by the opponent. But y'all tied up and a one single shot determines the outcome. But that outcome can, hey, they won the championship. LeBron is a four-time champion. And the other team, we can't remember their names. (laughs) So (laughs) the thing is, is that it makes a difference. 
Yes, that 74 million people voted for Trump, but that gummit, 80 million voted for my man Biden and my lady uh, Harris. And so um, I think that was a way that people said, let's let's make this down payment on social justice. Now I know a lot of, the, again, the left is like, look, this is a centrist Democrat, true, but it was some progressive folk that got um, elected too, Jamal, Bowman and Cory Bush joining the squad, you know, y'all out there doing your thing too. So, um, yeah, I think it does make a difference to have Biden as opposed to Trump. And I do, I do think it makes a difference that uh, those figures are there and not the fascists who embrace neo-Nazism and racism and anti-Mexican sentiment and anti-blackness and harangued gay and lesbian and transgendered and bisexual people and queer folk. Yeah, yeah, it makes a difference. And I think it is part of the reckoning that uh, was to come, that was promised, and this is what it looks like again. Writing, obviously, is heavily woven in your life as an academic speaker and so forth. And so you're writing to Elijah McClain and Emmett Till and Eric Garner and Breonna Taylor and Sandra Bland and Hadea Pendleton and the Reverend Clemente Pickney. You're writing to these mm-hmm. folks. What did you learn about yourself in writing to them? That I'm just as vulnerable. I feel helpless. That I'll do what I can. I'll write. I'll take up a pen. I want to scream. Makes me want to holler, throw up both my hands. Come on, Marvin. (laughs) (laughs) You know. um, But we do what we can. And we commit ourselves again to the struggle, even though it looks as if it will not turn out the way we want it to. But we have to keep fighting. And so I discovered, you know, I'd written a book, Tears We Cannot Stop, trying to Mm -hmm. talk to white America in 17, after Alton Sterling and after Philando Castile, and now after George Floyd, here I am again. But, you know, and I wrote it, and some people said, oh, it's so graphic, and you, oh my God, it's so poetic, you put us right there. And I get the point of safe spaces and self-care and trigger warnings, but they didn't have a warning about a trigger that was going to kill them. So again, I want to push back a little bit on that and say, if, if they could endure the death, at least you can endure talking about it. So maybe it won't happen again. At some points, self-care becomes unrestrained narcissism. Stop it. Collectively, I'm not against self-care. I mean it seriously, because we need it. I think the younger people have showed the older people we should have done that a long time ago. Mm-hmm. When they did the autopsy of King, 39 years old, his body wouldn't have shown the heart of a 60-year-old man because he's under that stress. Self-care might have helped. <clears throat> so I ain't against self-care. But at the same time, well, let's, let's have a trigger warning. We can't do it. Stop! Those people didn't have a warning They didn't have the safe space. Their bodies weren't even safe spaces. Their communities, their homes weren't safe spaces. So the least we could do is to expose ourselves to the trauma, not not repeatedly, not over and over again to the point of numbness, 
but at least to feel what they felt, to understand what they were up against so that we can be motivated uh, to move forward. And uh, I discovered that was uh, my gift, my necessity, my burden, and I wanted to share it with the world. The book is titled Long Time Coming, and it's the latest from author, scholar, Michael Eric Dyson. Compelling. Thank you so much, always, for taking the time. Happy holidays. Thank you, Ms. Scott. Happy holidays to you, and God bless. That's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Shelly Canavy. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. And listen whenever you want, because Closer Look is now available as a podcast. Just visit NPR One or your favorite streaming app and subscribe. This is 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.